In episode 40 of MobyCast, we learn about Chris's first venture-backed startup circa 1998 and their goal to build a database for internet-scale applications. Welcome to MobyCast, a weekly conversation about containerization, Docker, and modern software deployment. Let's jump right in. Welcome, Chris and Rich, episode number 40 here. Hey, Rich. Hey, John. What's up, guys? Great to be doing another MobyCast. So last week, we left ourselves on a bit of a cliffhanger. Chris was about to take the dangerous step of becoming an entrepreneur. And then right before he told us what that was going to be like, we pulled the plug on the on the MobyCast and said, let's wait a week. So here we are. And we're talking about, definitely go listen to last week's episode, but we're talking about DynamoDB and AWS and Brenner Vogel's talk, his keynote, and how that sent Chris down a bit of a trip down memory lane and how history kind of repeats itself. So I think the point of this story is is really that this is what software is all about, is, is these cycles and history repeating itself and, and essentially solving the core problems that technology is meant to solve or software is meant to solve, but with new tools and new techniques and new you know, bigger challenges and, and at bigger scales. So last week we talked about Werner Vogels' keynote and why Amazon decided to shift away from using a relational database for a lot of the work, a lot of the querying and, and data that they, they need for their Amazon.com website. Chris told the same story, but from six years prior to Amazon having this problem via Microsoft and MSN. And it kind of ended on a sad note where Microsoft killed Chris's project, his pet project, where he was building his own internet database. And kind of from a lack of ability, a lack of vision, I would call it, because clearly Chris was solving a real important problem that eventually did get solved. But before it gets solved, Chris is going to go out on his own and found a company about it. So Chris, let's let's take it away from there. It's I think it's March 11th, 1999. Yeah, it's a little it's a little bit before then. I left Microsoft at the end of 98 to do this. When I left Microsoft, myself and Marco, we were working on we were working with patent lawyers at Microsoft to draft up four patents related to this work that we did on how do you build an extensible storage layer for internet style data. So we had several discussions, sit down discussions with some of the legal team there at Microsoft, the patent lawyers to put that stuff together. But I, I couldn't wait. I wanted to go solve this problem now that the, the project had been basically terminated. So I left Microsoft um, at the end of 98. <laughs> those patents, those patents were still had to have the eyes out of the T's crossed. I think there was like one subsequent meeting that um, Marco stayed at Microsoft for, for several years after that. And so the patents were officially filed, I think, in March of 99, even though I had left at the end of 98. You know, what's so sort of funny is that that same year I was working on a thesis for my computer science degree where I was trying to see if I could get some kind of neural network into a robot car. And I didn't get the neural network in. I did get some computing into the robot car, but it's, it's sort of funny because this year also at reInvent during one of the keynotes, Deep Racer was announced, which Guess what? It's a neural network in a robot car. <laughs> so we both we were both working on things that eventually AWS would announce in mm-hmm. 2018. Yes. We're talking about it in 2018 reinvent. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. The cycle continues. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. So 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 I left. It was kind of weird because like looking back, like I had no hesitation whatsoever. 
and I hadn't even been there quite three years yet. So I was less than half vested in all my options. This was a, a peak time for Microsoft stock as well. I, in the, the less than three years that I'd been there, the stock had split three times. I mean, it was crazy. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Every quarter when we had the earnings call, it just blew it out the door. And it was just, it was a Wall Street darling and the stock it literally went from, I think my, my strike, my original strike price was something like $10. It ended up being like $10 a share. And by the time I left, it was a hundred dollars a share. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. So it's, it's, but I walk, I mean, like I said, I, I, I walked away from over half that it was without hesitation. Right. I was kind of right, like, right. man, that was either, that was either ballsy or stupid. <laughs> but, <laughs> But in retrospect, I have zero regrets. So left Microsoft at the end of 99, started, you know, like um, I teamed up with a former Microsoft colleague, Steven Anderson. He had left Microsoft. We had been actually office mates for a while there. And he had left Microsoft about six months prior to me. He went to go work for a, a software development company as their CTO and helped them grow their business. And we got to talking and I told him about what was on my mind and uh, wanting to go deal with this problem and build solutions for it. And he was excited by that as well. So we decided to, hey, let's go, let's go do a company. Let's go make this happen. And this is also, so 1989, right? This is the height of the first internet bubble. Like it is just so frothy. So mm -hmm. listeners out there may remember things like pets.com, right? And may remember things like Starbucks investing like 300, 400 million dollars in furniture.com. Like, or, or I don't know if it was, it was maybe it's living.com, right? It was like, it was an online furniture <laughs> website, right? Where it was like, they obviously like things like logistics of like, how do you ship this stuff and not like end up, you know, eating all your margin with, with stuff like that. So it was it was a really interesting interesting frothy time and the net net is like literally within six weeks of me leaving Microsoft we were um, Stephen and myself we were in the private back room of one of the the high end steakhouses in downtown Seattle it's a this wood paneled room with this massive wood table we're all sitting around and having having a lunch there's there's four or five venture capitalists along with Stephen myself and and another individual and the uh you know one of the vcs is like yes well we we would like to invest in you and so has a term sheet it's upside down face down on the table and slides it over to steven and i'm just thinking it's like this is so unreal right like this is like straight out of a movie um, right and you know steven turns it over and it's like here's our our seed round term sheet for seven hundred thousand dollars so you know i'm looking at this i'm like Oh my gosh, we're going to get $700,000. Like we don't even have, we have no assets, right? We have, it's just basically Steven and myself. It's an idea. It's a pitch. We right. haven't even, we haven't generated a document yet. We don't even have an executive summary typed out. Like it is literally just a pitch. And here it is like, we're going to get our shot and we have capital like immediately right out of the gate to go start executing on this. So pretty exciting. It was just, you know, boom, we're, we are off to the races and we were just on a mission at that point and just hit the ground running. So the whole concept was, you know, how do you build this scalable database layer 
And how do you do things like partitioning and sharding and clustering? And how do you make it highly available? How do you make it so that it's a a completely scale out architecture. You had kind of already done a lot of work on it for Microsoft. Obviously, you couldn't use that code anymore, but you'd probably already learned some of the things that you wouldn't have, you know, you wouldn't want to do again, right? Like, oh, yeah, if I were to write that again. Absolutely. I mean, so so the the work at Microsoft, this was building on some of those core concepts, but, you know, the actual implementation and, and it, it was it was different, right? It was it was um, it was rotated at least 90 degrees, if you will. The The work we we're doing on Microsoft was really geared towards, it was a different persistence mechanism. So we were primarily thinking about file-based storage instead of that was the database, the file system was the database. It was dealing with things like XML was the document format back then until JSON came along, right? So we, we actually had XML. So there, there were differences and there were some different kind of goals, but absolutely the, the work with the startup company was... And what was the name of the startup company? So the name of the startup company was, was Viathan. And, you know, naming things is one of the hardest things in the world to do. So like when we started a company, it was like, you know, we have to come up with a name for it. And you have to do things like copyright searches, trademark searches. You have to do things like domain name searches, right? And, and you know, see what's... Oh, the luxury of doing a domain name search in 1999. <laughs> well, you know, I so actually, roomy. yeah. I mean, you know, then it was like, you know, there was infinitely more choices. However, it was still difficult. It felt like all the good ones were taken and it was very hard to come up with something. So it was almost like it kind of felt like the the couple in the hospital that has it has a baby and it's like two days after the birth of the baby and still don't know what to name it. And they're like, well, you, you need to fill out this paperwork for the birth certificate. So pick a name. And so Steve and I, we were in an elevator, riding the elevator up into our lawyer's offices to draw up the paperwork for incorporation. And kind of came with this idea as like, well, what about what about Viathan? Because I was the the code name for what we were building, we were calling it Leviathan, because Leviathan, name of a monster, very, very big, lurking underneath, you know, the water. Literally um, <laughs> from Moby Dick, which <laughs> here we are on MobyCast. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Again, it comes full circle. <laughs> Everything is related, people. Everything. Right. Yes. yes. And so I said, Let, let's just chop off the LE. Viathan. We'll make up a, a word. And Stephen's like, I love it. Sounds great. We run it by our lawyer. He's like, I love it. It sounds big. It sounds forceful. It sounds strong. So that's how we named the company. So, so Viathan oh. was the name and off we went. So we, again, we were building, you know, how do you, how do you store this internet data? It's not really relational. How do you deal with things like partitioning, the sharding? How do you cluster it? What are all the components that you need into that? And to go build that out. And so we spent the next few years doing exactly that. We, you know, lots of lessons learned over the process. We got a lot of things right and we got a few things, you know, really wrong. And at the end of the day, that's what kind of hurt us. But the net net there was that this was still early days. And so even though Microsoft, companies like Microsoft at that kind of scale had this problem, the rest of the ecosystem wasn't there the internet hadn't grown to the size um, where there was enough people with that pain and they, they needed a solution today. They, they knew they were going to need it a few years down the road, but, but not necessarily today. So I have a um, couple of 
clarifying questions though. You you had said at one point you were talking about file system files on the file system storage and XML, and I I just wasn't clear when you said that whether that was Viathan that was using XML and files on the file system or whether that was Microsoft. So what we were doing at my at Microsoft Microsoft was like let's not have a database like let the file system be the database. So. The the project name at Microsoft we actually called it IFS, um, which was short for Internet File, Internet file System. Yeah. yeah. Oh, File Store. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So basically, it was backend code on that. That at the end of the day is using. In a way, you can think of what we were building was really similar to S3. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, that's right? what I was thinking it's about. Just super, super similar to S3, if not almost again verbatim. And so that that was that was the work at at Microsoft with you were Bio- building a data lake, Chris. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's essentially, yeah, because that's what this, the all this data could could be stored in files, and and they, those files were actually XML documents, right? Right, that's, right. So that that was the whole the whole gist behind that. With Viathan, we we took a different tact, and we said, you know, let's actually. There's some good things about relational databases in that you know they they are highly performant. They have very you know they are built to be to support ACID. So let's leverage the best and throw and and design around the the negatives of them. So okay. with Viathan, we actually used relational database as the persistence store instead of a file system, but still sticking with this concept of things are you don't have like these multi-table relationships. They really are like these bits and blobs of data that are independent. So build in to support the concept of things like sharding, partitioning, clustering, but use a relational database as the actual persistence store. Just kind of wanting to dig around in that idea a little bit. I'm just imagining that one of the things about doing that is like a database sort of writes everything to a set of files that it keeps open. So when you use a file system, you maybe have to go open and close files and that takes a little time. It's a little slow. Whereas if you have the file handles already, you're, they're just sitting there ready for you to write or read from the file, then things, everything gets faster. So is that part of what you were thinking? Like we can make this faster by, by using, uh, like something like a database that just is good at, at pulling information in and out, out of files that it already has access to. Yeah. I mean, I think there, it was, it was multi. Yeah. That and you get the asset transaction stuff for mm-hmm. free. Yeah. So things like locking transactions and then also just the, you know, going to market with something like this to mm-hmm. say like we're built on top of these industrial yeah. strength systems, right? That is a, is a, is a net win as opposed to saying like we're building something completely from scratch, you know, right, based, right. Upon the, based upon the file system. That makes sense. Yeah. So interesting that like you started, you kind of built a document database on top of relational databases. So you would get that, the acid compliance and that this year, 2018, Mongo announces acid compliance. And DynamoDB now supports transactions. So, yeah. Craziness. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So it's, it's, again, like I said, it's interesting how far we got with Viathan and so that work, we, we did get rather far with it. We went through several iterations. That work led to um, a few patents being issued as well. Before you talk about those patents, another thing I've never asked you about this is, did you have any kind of significant customers doing any important real work ever? It's okay if you say no. I mean, you could have just been too far ahead of the, the market. Or I could just lie, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, we had, we had IBM, we had NASA. We had Bank of America. No. Oh, shoot. You, I, you had me going. I was like, well, that's freaking cool. That's great. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> now, so again, this this kind of gets into some of the, the 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 trials and tribulations. So, and some of the big lessons learned that we had. So, so I, I kind of alluded to the fact like the ecosystem wasn't ready for it. And so, mm-hmm. you know, at that point in time, like you didn't really have much, and there wasn't much in the way of dynamic programming languages. You didn't have. I mean, almost everything was compiled, right? It was basically C. And Java were your were your options. For the most part, you were writing those as like native applications. You were you were, if it was web based code, you were doing uh, ISAPI extension, you know, ISAPI extensions, which is basically a plugin model for Microsoft's Internet Server. You're writing C code to to go into that, and then you were your C code was using you know SDKs. Like you weren't this whole like concept of API driven development and RESTful APIs, like it really wasn't a thing at that time. Right. You were just writing code the way that you always had with just linking to an SDK and, and calling, you know, that API. And it was doing its own marshalling over yep. the work and unmarshalling and whatnot. So in order for someone to adopt this technology that we're building, right, it's not, it wasn't just, you couldn't just like plug it in and turn it on and it just works, right? Like, they actually had whatever applications that they had that were storing and retrieving data, those applications had to be modified, right? They had to write to our SDK so that it could actually leverage the the data layer that we had built. So that was a big, big source of friction. Um, I can't imagine there being an entity Java bean for Viathan databases. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Uh, EJB didn't even exist. Uh, you know, Enterprise. Okay. One. The enterprise edition of Java didn't even exist at that point. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, you know, 2000, 2001. I don't know. EJBs, maybe I've been there by then, but maybe, maybe. you were too far up in the Northwest, too close to Microsoft to hear mm, about it. Probably. Probably. <laughs> so, we, you know, we, we did have this issue with like, okay, there's one, like we're asking you to replace your database with, with us. Right, like right, that's, yeah. that's a huge thing. And then two, you have to go and rewrite your application with our, with our new SDKs and APIs, right? Mm. So there's, there's definitely some work there to be done. We spent a lot of time, I mean, I personally spent a lot of my time on planes going and visiting folks down in, in, in the Valley, in Silicon Valley, working on just that of getting like ba- basically beta customers. Um, right, and it's a, yeah, pilot. And so it, it, it was a tough, tough sell. I mean, we went and talked to a bunch of super interesting companies, you know, that were doing like, like they were at the top of their game. So we went and we, we did go down and talk to IBM and some of their engineers. I was talking with EMC quite a bit. We went down and talked with LoudCloud and, uh, for people like this is going in the way back machine. Um, LoudCloud was what Mark Andreessen did after he left Netscape. So it was okay, yeah, yeah. all about data center, basically giving you data center management software, right? <laughs> and so, you know, we were we were trying to get in at LoudCloud to say like, look, this needs to be part of your offering to folks that are trying to run, you know, internet scale businesses in the software that they need to do it. So the other thing that we ran into is like, we didn't get a lot of time to do this. Um, mm-hmm. So from... So, so from kind of like that point in time of being in the back room of the Metropolitan Grill, steak lunch, term sheet for 700K to, oh no, like this thing's just, just died. That was about two and a half years. I mean, we, we built a lot in the first 18 months, 24 months, but it still wasn't, I mean, we weren't at version 1.0 yet. Like this was very mission critical, very difficult software to build lots of components to it, 
lots of things to, to deal with. And, and sometimes the last 20%, like this is definitely not the case. Like the last 20% is 80% of the work almost it felt like. So we ran into timing issues and, and politics and expectations on um, between folks that we brought in to help round out the management team that weren't comfortable in the space, investors managing their expectations. And at the end of the day, we just kind of, we ran out of time. And so we weren't able to, to really bring that, all the technology and the IP that we created, we, we didn't get the, the running room to, to bring it to market. We I think to be fair to you, though, also, you did end up getting a little bit more cash at some point, right? We could sit here and probably spend hours to kind of like going through like that whole history because it was a wild, wild, wild right, ride. Right, right. We we did go on to raise more money. We At the end of the day, we raised $24 million total in VC. We, we grew from six zero to 60 people. We hit the ground running. It was like z- we went from zero miles an hour to 150 miles an hour in a matter. It felt like of weeks and we stayed at that rate, you know, for the whole duration and so much drama and intrigue, so much great engineering was done and technology was created. Like I said, a couple patents came out of this. Yeah. Talk about the patents. Sure. Yeah. The I actually just went and, and looked at this the other day because I was just kind of interested, especially after hearing Warner describe the the trials and tribulations that he had that which led to the creation of, of DynamoDB. So I went back to the to the primary patent that resulted from the, the work that we did at Viathan. And the title of the patent is Internet Database System. And thought that was kind of interesting because when Warner was going through his slides. He described DynamoDB as the, this was the database for internet scale applications. And it's like the title of our patent was internet database system. Yeah. (laughs) Right. The one thing that kind of, that stuck out to me is that there are 199 other patents that now cite this as prior art, which is pretty, that's pretty good for, for a patent to have that many other patents reference it. That's actually a pretty high number. You know, a lot of patents will have a handful or 20, 30, 40. So to have 199, that's quite a few. So that's kind of, that was really kind of cool and yeah. interesting to see that so much follow on work was kind of citing this as prior art and building on top of it. But even more interesting was to see of those, those other patents that cited this as prior art, there are try to, I, I came up with like 61 of those belong to Amazon. Mm. Um, so almost like, what is that? Like that's just about a third of all of the, the other patents that cite this belong to Amazon. And then if you look at those, some of those, those, uh, patents, the titles of those Amazon patents, they are like the components of DynamoDB, right? Right. Um, it has to do with, with partitioning and, and sharding and request routing. So it's just it's just super super interesting. I'm not. You I know, just I, realized though that I'm confused by that because I guess I don't know the patent system well enough. When you reference something as prior art, it feels like if you're building on top of an existing patent, shouldn't you be paying the patent holder a license fee or at least getting in touch with the patent holder and think, can I use this? If you if you're actually licensed, if you are using it verbatim, then yeah, you need to license that. Um, but. You know, the whole, I think, you know, the whole idea behind the patent system is basically, you know, you're sharing your, your intellectual property so that others may learn from it and uh-huh. extend it. And in return, 
you get the the assurance that anyone else that basically can't steal your idea verbatim, right? But derivative work is is something different, right? And so all these 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 other patents that cite this as prior art, like that's derivative work. It has to be it has to be different enough so that it's not duplicating, it's not stealing, it's not okay. copying what was done, but it, it needs to be an extension of it. So just like you know, there was patents that was done at Microsoft for that internet file store project, and there were some similarities to it. The work that was done at Viathan, it's derivative work. It's not copying that, but it's it's kind of taking some of those principles and now taking it to the next level, right? What, okay. You know, so okay. It's, it, it is new. It's a new invention, right? Okay, so, got it. So yeah, so that that's what's going on here. So these are, and this is all part of the patent process too. When you file a patent, you're you're you need to go and and do a patent search to see, okay, what are similar patents? And this kind of helps the patent examiners as well. They're going to do it when they examine it to go look into the the patent database to see what other patents are similar to it in the same same kind of categories and whatnot and make sure that there's not overlap, right? They will, because you you will have this as well, right? Like if there is some overlap and the patent examiner has has issues or questions with it, then there will be back and forth, right? You may have to either explain your way out of it or actually change your claims, right? They they will right. definitely be because at the end of the day, it's the claims of the patent that dictate what it is that you that you get to keep as yours, right? Um, right, a, right, yeah. So, and, and what can be enforced, right? So I, I think, you know, this little side journey on patents, I think that the important thing to take away is, is kind of what we're going to get into over the next couple of episodes is basically, Chris, you literally did a lot of the groundbreaking work for what would become DynamoDB. And then and that's what we're going to talk about over the next couple of episodes. We're going to really look under the hood at it and see what it's all about. And I think we're going to base most of that material on talk that we you attended at reInvent. Yeah, it was super excited because at reInvent, they did have a, a deep dive on the implementation of DynamoDB. So mm-hmm. um, something that Amazon AWS has ne- never really shared before is like, okay, what is the architecture? How does DynamoDB actually work under the covers? Mm-hmm. And so um, so I was super interested to, to see you know what they did there and how they architected it. And again, it was one of those things like, wow, this is total deja vu. Like, this is exactly what we did at Viathan or a lot of the exact same problems. And some of the exact same solutions. So it was, it was very interesting. So looking forward to diving, diving more into that. Great. Um, well, thank you for putting this together, Rich. And thanks for just fantastic stories over the last couple of episodes, Chris. And we'll see yeah. you next week. Thanks, guys. See you guys. Bye. Well, dear listener, you made it to the end. We appreciate your time and invite you to continue the conversation with us online. This episode, along with show notes and other valuable resources, is available at mobicast.fm forward slash four zero. If you have any questions or additional insights, we encourage you to leave us a comment there. Thank you, and we'll see you again next week.